Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the G2V Podcast. This is Arnold T. Blumberg, and my co-host, as always, is... Scott Woodard. Well, before we get to the episode's main topic, uh, we do have some business to take care of from a previous episode, and that is the winner of the last contest we ran just a couple episodes back. That's right. We did get uh, a number of entries for this. Uh, Our prize this time around is a copy of the 1983 release, The Doctor Who Technical Manual, uh, by Mark Harris, with an introduction by uh, then-producer John Nathan Turner. It's listed as the official anniversary volume, because, of course, it was 83. It was the 20th anniversary. And uh, as I say, we got a bunch of entries, and our winner, thanks to the miracle of random number generation, is... Mark Askren. Hopefully I'm pronouncing your name correctly. I'm becoming like every episode I'm mispronouncing names. (laughs) And Mark sent us a nice little story about his introduction to the show, and I thought I would read that as promised on the last one. Uh, He says, My first contact with Doctor Who was in the early 1980s when the show was being aired on KPBS Channel 28 in Los Angeles. It was Tom Baker, and the episode was The Ark in Space. Very good one. Uh, I have to say that I was actually frightened by the green bubble wrap that surrounded Noah's hand. (laughs) Yes, if you've never seen it, and you should see it, uh, it is green bubble wrap. Um, He says, and I stood somewhat cowardly behind my bed, which was the largest piece of furniture in my bedroom where the television was placed. I was actually rather scared, but also compelled by the story and the marvelous actors to continue watching. Uh, It changed my life forever. I haven't left Doctor Who since that time. So, Mark, you are the lucky winner of the Doctor Who Technical Manual from 1983, and I will get in touch with you to get your address, and we'll get that out to you as soon as we possibly can. That's really awesome. Nice story and a really good episode to start with, too. For sure. G2V. Now, before we get into that main topic, like I mentioned before, we also had some other stuff we wanted to do. Uh, We're right up against the holiday season here. Christmas is on the way. Uh, The last Matt Smith episode of Doctor Who is going to be airing on Christmas Day, the time of the Doctor. But there might be some last-minute shopping that people are doing, and we thought we'd recommend a few things that we have laying about that we thought we might highlight. Uh, Maybe some last-minute choices for your gift cards or for your online shopping. Number one. Well, my first recommendation is something that that, uh, many of you probably have already heard about, but if not, it is S, and that's just S period, uh, created by J.J. Abrams and uh, author Doug Dorst. And this is actually a book, we're not talking about a TV show or a film here, uh, even though J.J.'s involved, and it is really a phenomenal project. And I think one of the coolest things about it is, as far as I can tell, there's no way they could do a digital version of this. Uh, This is not, I I highly doubt you're going to see an e-book of this, because it's just loaded with all sorts of amazing content. The uh, conceit here is that uh, a young woman has found this old book, 
and she's picked it up and there are notes and things scrawled in the margins that sort of begin to unravel this incredible mystery. And then she makes her own notes, leaves it for the person who wrote those original ones, and it kind of bounces back and forth. You get little slips of paper in there. You've got all this stuff. It's a slipcased book that's that's rendered in the style of an old book from, say, maybe the 50s or 60s. Uh, really, really terrific-looking product. Uh, retails for about 35 bucks, but it's it seems like you're getting so much content in there that it's worth every penny. I have seen it, obviously, online for significantly less. And amazingly, the last time I checked Amazon for this, it was out of stock so uh and but i know that uh here uh, powell's here in uh, portland still has copies on their shelves so uh, obviously if you're local uh, you can go there or certainly check your local bookshops but it's called s just uh, s period and uh, it looks to be a really amazing product from jj abrams and doug dorst that sounds really cool it sounds like it has kind of a house of leaves kind of vibe too yeah and of course it's sort of an extension of that whole jj abrams mystery box you know concept that he kicks around all the time yeah sounds good All right, well, for me, the first two things I'm going to talk about are DVDs. And we certainly have spent enough time, as so many of us have in this uh, fan community, talking about Doctor Who and the 50th anniversary. So I thought one thing I'd highlight for sure, uh, partially thanks to the good folks at BBC America, are a couple of DVD releases, one that just came out and one that came out a little while ago. So my first one is actually the Day of the Doctor 50th anniversary special, which comes out, and boy, do I love these. Uh, I have fallen in love with getting DVDs this way, and technically not DVDs. When they put out stuff you really like, and they put it out in that Blu-ray DVD combo, particularly when they do it when they also have a digital copy. I used to think I'd never go that way. (laughs) Now I love it. Um, But this one doesn't have that, but it does come with Blu-ray 3D, if you have that capability, Blu-ray and DVD, And it's the Day of the Doctor special, uh, the uncut version as it was aired um, just a short while ago. It does have a few extras on it. Not extensive like a lot of the other DVD uh, Doctor Who releases, but then this is more about celebrating the 50th anniversary and that specific story. And, of course, it's the grand adventure with Matt Smith teaming up with David Tennant and John Hurt's previously unknown war doctor. And we certainly spent a lot of time talking about how much we both really enjoyed that show. But it is out now for $24.99, and uh, that's on Amazon anyway. And it's simply one of the best ways that you could mark the anniversary, and we have one more story coming this year, so that's my first one. Oh, that's excellent. And uh, shockingly, I still don't have a copy in my uh, my collection, but it's on my wish list. There you so go. hopefully it shows up under my tree. Number two. Uh, my second one is uh, actually it's just a new edition of a product that's been around since 1989 and that is Shadowrun the role playing game Shadowrun uh, the 5th edition has come out it's being produced by Catalyst Game Labs it was released in September so it's been around for a couple of months really really gorgeous uh, production here it's a massive book and if you're familiar with Shadowrun at all, you absolutely must go out and get this new edition. It, they've done a, just a terrific job, and I do hope they support it with further source books and things like that. Shadowrun has been supported over the years uh, with some incredible products. And this new edition is is just, it's totally shiny, to, to quote <laughs> some Firefly. And... Um, and definitely worth tracking down. Uh, it is a little pricey. It's retail at uh, $59.99, but it's one of those uh, massive full-color RPGs with the glossy pages that everybody will go gaga for and you know totally want to get their hands on. So uh, Shadowrun 5th Edition from Catalyst Game Labs. It's also interesting that the two things you mentioned so far, you really focus a lot on the beautiful design work that goes into some of this stuff. 
Oh yeah. And that's really important. It's more than just sometimes it's more than just content too. It's the way that content is presented. It's the whole package. And that's real. That sounds awesome. So uh, I mentioned DVDs. I didn't want to be too samey, but it's that time of year. We all have Doctor Who in our brains right now. <laughs> so I decided to at least change it up a little bit and highlight one of the classic DVD releases. Again, thanks to the folks at BBC America. I keep saying that. This came out a little while back, actually in November. Uh, but it's also sort of appropriate because we're heading into uh, Christmas and Matt Smith's final episode, which of course means a big regeneration. What's going to happen? Well, spoiler hounds know a little. Uh, the rest of us are waiting to find out. But if you want to see the way it was done for the very, very first time and basically set up the way the show would continue on and last for those 50 years and for many years to come, you can go back and check out Doctor Who, The Tenth Planet, which was the first Doctor, William Hartnell's final story ever. And they put it out on DVD just about a month ago. It does not include the fourth episode because that one is missing. Well, let's say still missing. Um, and what it does include is an animated version of that episode because we have all the audio from all that missing stuff. So this isn't as complete a form as it possibly can be, and I do also have to throw in one other thing about it, which is that if you're a classic fan, obviously it's a must-have. If you're someone that's discovered Doctor Who brand new, here's another great way to jump in and see the way regeneration, which wasn't even called that then, was handled for the very first time. And it's also the introduction of the Cybermen, who will be turning up in the time of the Doctor. We know that already. But one of the things I have to highlight is the classic Doctor Who releases in general, these DVD releases, which are now coming to an end, uh, possibly, because just about <laughs> every story that exists has been put out. They just have to be the finest releases of any television show yet. They are an archival encyclopedia of material. Every release has so many extras commentaries and original productions, um, behind-the-scenes stuff, extra little bits and pieces. Comedian and performer Toby Haydock often does a lot of side work on these, uh, presenting things about the writers behind the scenes or the people who worked on stunt work. It is, a, like I said, it's an encyclopedia of this show, and for a show that's lasted 50 years, uh, that's quite a lot of material. So you're getting an extraordinary collection if you get all of these releases, but Check out The Tenth Planet, which retails for $34.98. These classic Doctor Who releases, I will say, yeah, they may be a little bit pricey, but they certainly, based on the way the DVD market is, they more than give you your money's worth in terms of the content. And it's certainly one of the great stories to take a look at now more than ever as we reach the end of another Doctor's era. And back to you. Yeah, that's definitely one that's going into my collection. Number three. My uh, third and final for this list is, uh, well, we have to have zombies. Zombies must be involved awesome. in any of these lists or any of our shows. Somehow they've got to weave their way in. I didn't even think uh, of that. Were... <laughs> exactly. I'll take care of it. Um, so a few years ago, uh, there was a company called Fireside Games, and they released a really terrific cooperative game called Castle Panic. And it's where you're defending a castle from uh, an onslaught of marauding orcs and things coming at you from all sides. Great game. Highly recommended. Uh, it's, it even has an expansion. Go check that one out. But if, uh, if dragons and orcs aren't your thing, you might want to check out Dead Panic. Uh, Dead Panic is, a, a again, a cooperative game, two to six players. Uh, it plays in about an um, hour, hour and a half. Uh, it retails for $39.95, and in this case, now you are playing survivors in a cabin with, an, uh, of course, an on oncoming uh, storm haha, of zombies. <laughs> cabin. <laughs> and, uh, 
It's great. You have uh, you have decks of cards with various weapons. You have to move around and, and you know board up the the cabin as the zombies are coming in. Uh, you can uh, fight the zombies as they come through. They it's just a really really fun game, and the fact that it's cooperative makes it even more fun as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's really terrific. I just noticed that there was a little Dread Central review on this printout I have. Uh, they say Dead Panic is a wonderful co-op game. It captures the mood of the classic Night of the Living Dead setup, and they give it four out of five. So, uh, really, really terrific game. Highly recommended. It's only just now beginning to show up in stores, as far as I can tell. So, if you're looking for a copy, keep your eyes peeled. And last I checked, Amazon didn't actually have any. But, um... Uh, but it is great, and uh, you definitely want to check out Dead Panic if you want a cooperative game, two to six players, and you want a little bit of zombies on your game table. See, and I was just about to say, I am heading online right now to put it on my Amazon wish list, <laughs> but I can't, apparently. Apparently um, it's not on there. I don't know why. Somebody buy me Dead Panic, please. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds fantastic. All right, so you've done three, and I'm going to do my third and final recommendation. We haven't talked about it a lot on the podcast, maybe not at all yet, but one of the things that I am really passionate about among many of the other interests is uh, collecting Lego. And that goes back through my whole childhood, but Lego is a big deal for me. And as anyone out there listening who knows things about Lego or considers themselves another adult fan of Lego, or AFOL, as they say, um, (laughs) then you also know a little bit about something that we often refer to as the Dark Ages, which is usually that period in Lego fandom where you stop buying stuff or you become less aware of it. I kind of went through that a little bit in the 90s. I was brought back by something called Cafe Corner in 2007 when a designer named Jamie Berard and some people at Lego started an absolutely phenomenal line of pricey, um, uh, but large sets designed specifically for older fans who wanted larger and much more complex and intricate and interesting building experiences. And the whole concept of what's called the modular line is that each set is a building along a street that if you keep getting them, you get one massive, incredibly complex-looking, absolutely beautifully designed street of buildings. Since 2007, they've put out sets like Greengrocer, um, uh, Palace Cinema was one of the late, latest ones, a town hall with a working elevator inside it. Uh, extraordinary stuff. And each one tries to up the ante. Some of them not quite so successful, uh, but every one of them tries to up the ante in terms of design and making things even more beautiful and interesting. And part of the joy is finding... Uh, new and interesting pieces in different colors and amazing what they call snot or S-N-O-T. No, that's not disgusting, although it sounds like it. Uh, it refers to studs not on top. It's a, a particular kind of Lego building in which you really try to defeat the general Lego idea of stacking the bricks up and having all the studs of the pieces on top. And so it gets more intricate and bizarre. A lot of fans have come up with amazing techniques, and Jamie himself is a fan, so he works a lot of that into these buildings. Well, anyway, the latest one is coming out on January 1st, and it's called Parisian Restaurant. The modular line is now part of a subset of LEGO called the Creator Line, so when you go on lego.com or anywhere like that, you'll find it as a LEGO Creator Set. It's set 10243, the 10s, the 10,000 sets, we know they're all the modulars usually, or the really big ones. And this is Parisian Restaurant, and it may be the most beautiful or one of the most beautifully designed sets in this whole modular line since Cafe Corner. It is absolutely stunning, and if you go online and see it, it's an incredible building with a split-level patio in the back. Uh, There's an entire drama taking place inside the restaurant because one of the things about these, these sets have evolved to include 
incredible detail inside furniture and working parts and inside there's a couple where someone is proposing and there's a guy holding a saber ready to do the saber thing with a bottle of wine and there's an entire wedding proposal and engagement taking place on the first floor of Chez Albert the Parisian restaurant and it also includes neat little things like uh, the ring that he's using to propose is the same piece used as the one ring in all of the recent Lord of the Rings and Hobbit sets that Lego has <laughs> done. A funny little carryover. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and of course, the ring, when you look at it, in order to be uh, large enough for it to work, actually looks like it would be a bracelet for any of the Lego minifigures. <laughs> but we go with that. That's okay. An extraordinary-looking set. And since it's a French restaurant, what's interesting, particularly for our episode this time around, is that it also looks like the sort of building and the sort of architecture that might feel quite at home at a place like, I don't know, New Orleans. So I would definitely recommend the Parisian restaurant. It, like I said, these aren't cheap, these uh, modular sets. But if you're a Lego collector and if you have the means, they're certainly worth it. This one is going to be $159.99 and it's coming out on January 1st. If you're a LEGO VIP member, this is the time to use those points. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. G to V. Well, speaking of New Orleans, it's about time we get to our main topic for this episode, and that is American Horror Story, and more specifically, the current season, American Horror Story Coven, which just recently reached its mid-season finale. That mid-season finale, Head, the episode titled Head, one of the things I really love about this show, by the way, one of the many things we'll probably talk about, is they, they have some fantastic episode titles. Which sometimes you have to go seek out, because a lot of shows will not show you those episode titles on screen. But when you're a fan of a show, sometimes that's an extra thing. And I just love that. So Head was the mid-season finale. It was all kinds of crazy, as American Horror Story <laughs> often is. But uh, I do also have to start off by giving you full credit. This was a, a case where you introduced me to the show. And it was a show that you'd already been watching since it debuted three years ago where every season is a completely separate, self-contained, year-long story. Uh, it's an anthology approach that I think is absolutely brilliant, and I'd love to see a lot more of complete television story being told in a single season. But what's more interesting is that American Horror Story overall as a show has also created a sort of repertory company of actors who return every year, or combinations of them return every year. And there's sort of a, a continuity in that, but you get to see everybody shift positions and play different characters every year and the genre changes a little bit and of course the story is very different and uh, you introduced me to the show my wife and i powered through all of season one on netflix 
and just in time to jump into the debut of this third season when it was actually airing. So with uh, full cards on the table, I have not yet seen season two, the Asylum storyline, but we'll obviously be going to that as soon as Coven is wrapped up. But we'll watch this one all the way through first. Right, and to be fair, um, I you know I I was very excited when you got into season one, and I still think season one is a very strong season. Um, and it's weird. I'm mean, in a weird way. I almost think we should refer to this show's seasons as series, like the British do. It's a good point. Yeah, like them Brits do, because <laughs> uh, because each one is a complete encased, encapsulated storyline. Uh, so it really is effectively a, se- a series. Yeah, that's true. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so season one, very strong. And I had told you repeatedly that I thought season two was, wasn't particularly good. Um, I have a lot of problems with it. I know you're going to watch it eventually. Uh, but for those of you who uh, have seen it, uh, the funny thing is I tend to find a lot of agreement about the issues that I have with it uh, amongst fans. So uh, I, I didn't feel alone. You know, sometimes, Arnold, you and I will will, will be critical of something and we'll talk to other fans, and they'll be shocked that we have those issues with it. I can't imagine what you're talking about. I don't <laughs> no, know what you're all. saying. Not in, not at all. <laughs> but in, in regards to season two of, uh, of American Horror Story, there are sort of almost universal criticisms. And at some point, you know, we'll, after you've watched it, we'll, I'm sure, talk about it. And who knows, maybe we'll even do a follow-up uh, episode of the podcast. Yeah, but... I'm very much interested in seeing. We we agree on a lot of things, obviously. So I, I feel like I'm probably going to notice some of the same stuff. But still looking forward to it, though. Yeah, and you're still going to get some great performances. You know, it's got it's got a lot of the cast members that we've that you you'll I'm sure like, and uh, it, some of the stuff is really good. And, and it starts out very strong, but then it it becomes very muddled as the series goes on, and that's where I have my big issues. And you'll see it. I don't want to spoil it for you. <laughs> that's okay. But I but I will say that it was wise for you, I think, to jump from one to three. And for me, which, you know, and this is something that's almost unheard of in, in television, uh, I I really believe that season three of this show uh, has been my favorite. I think that yeah. really, I think that reinforces something that has long been a theory that I didn't necessarily come up with, but I have always strongly held and agreed with other people, particularly in genre fandom, that have held it, which is that the third year of many shows tends to be the best year. Hmm, and okay. and it makes a lot of sense because when you think about it, if a consistent production team is working on a show, you could argue that around the third year is when everybody's comfortable in their roles. In in this case, though, you can't make the argument <laughs> cast are more comfortable in their in their roles because they're not. And yet the actors are coming back every year. So right. there is some of that. I mean, there are people that will always say that Next Generation absolutely hit its peak with season three, or certainly clicked for the first time in a powerful way in season three. And there are a lot of other shows where people look at it and go, it's the third year, it's the third year. And here we are again with this, and in the third season, it seems like they've hit something that, first of all, it does seem like although they were already getting a lot of pop culture attention, they've exploded this year. Yeah, uh, Coven seems to have really captured so much mainstream attention in a way that even the first year didn't. And and one thing that you pointed out, uh, one of the many times he's talked about it week by week, is how the tone shift has been pretty drastic and how right from episode one, despite all the really dark and violent (laughs) and insane stuff in this, it has a strange uh, tongue-in-cheek lightheartedness to it. 
Yeah, absolutely. It has a sense of humor, very black humor, very, very deep and dark when you consider <laughs> all this going on. But it definitely does have a sense of humor about it that maybe, the, at least for me anyway, all I can refer to is the first season. The first season really lacked. First season was, was very good, but relentless. Oh, yeah. uh, and and while that's fine, you know that's the kind of story you want to tell, and I thought it was excellent. This one is is so much fun while it's doing horrific things. Yeah, yeah. The first one was, as you say, it was relentless. It was just, it just, it just was. It went on and on and on of, for the most part, fairly innocent people <laughs> being just wrecked and destroyed oh, right. and broken down and tortured. And eventually killed <laughs> in horrific ways. I think for me, the pivotal moment, and, and I'll just dance around it a little bit. I mean, I'm sure at the, three years in, I think it's fair enough. I think but, we're okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think for me, the turning point that actually sort of was a punch in the gut was the pivotal episode about Teza Farmiga's character. And, oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> that happens, what, around halfway through. And when that happened, I was genuinely taken by surprise, and I thought that was one of the most depressing things I'd seen <laughs> at the time. I mean, brilliant within the course of telling the story, but I needed to take a break after that one. <laughs> yeah, I can totally understand that. And, of course, I was watching it as as it aired. And so when that one – when they revealed that incredible little twist, uh, I just remember, yeah, my heart sank. Yeah. Yeah, it was just that uh, – at the same time, I thought it was just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Like, And it was funny too because if you think back on it, how else are we going to – are we going to dance around it? Or we, <laughs> I mean we're not going to focus on the first season per se. But No, but it also is, is too far gone now at this point. I think it would be crazy. Well, I mean obviously we're trying to encourage people also to go see it if they haven't. Right. Uh, so we'll just say, okay, if you're going to go see it and you haven't, we're going to talk about it for a minute. So here, here's a spoiler warning, but we got to talk about it, so go ahead. Okay, well, uh, you know, obviously, the, the, there is a big twist in, in in regards to a major character, and that is that the you there's a reveal that a character you've been following all along at some point in the series, and it is shown on screen, but we kind of just skirt around it, uh, actually dies mm-hmm. and carries on as a ghost. Yeah. And when they finally do that reveal, they do it so beautifully. Beautifully. And so subtly. <laughs> yeah, but the, but then also it has such a, a painful and absolutely horrific right there in your face way of revealing it. Oh, yeah. Where it's the character discovering the truth when you discover the truth. To me, it just yeah. makes it all the more heartrending and <laughs> devastating that it's the person completely clueless about their true nature and you get hit with it at the same time they do. Yeah. And what was really interesting about it too, is that there was enough of enough buildup so that prior to the actual reveal, Mm -hmm. you know where it's going. And I remember that. I remember, and and again, uh, I'll I'll dance a little around it, but I remember saying she's not going to make it beyond the gate. Yeah. And like, and as she was running towards it, and as soon as you see that, well, the other happened. the other thing I felt at that point too was that to me was also a moment where I realized just and and already so many crazy things had happened in that year of the show, <laughs> and we'll have to get off of this since so we can really talk about coming. I know we got to go through uh, three, <laughs> but so many crazy things had already happened in that year of the show. Um, but it was at that moment I think it was that plot point that made me realize all bets are off. Because I, I was up to that point, I had this expectation like, well, here's a character I know is untouchable who will walk away from that house. 
And when that happened, I was like, oh, then everybody can go down. There, there, there's no rules here. Mm-hmm. And I was both shocked by that and genuinely excited by it as a viewer because, again, <laughs> it was like, wow, they're going to just do anything they want to do. And And I guess in a way what that also says is how nice it is to have shows like this. And the reason we're so enthusiastic about it and we're so looking forward to talking about it is you don't get a lot of it. Maybe we're getting a little bit more now, which is kind of nice. But unfortunately, so much storytelling, movies, television, whatever, it, it goes for what's safe and what's yeah. predictable. And when you suddenly realize that a storyteller is going to throw out the rule book and say, no, we're going to do what we want to do, there's something really exciting and wonderful about that. It really wins you over. And that's one of the reasons why I think this show is so great, is that you really have no idea what's going to happen. And Coven, to provide maybe a nice segue here, Coven (laughs) seems to have really stepped that up several notches, where it seems like every week you think, my wife and I have been looking at each other, at least two or three times an episode ago, well, that happened. (laughs) (laughs) There's just like no clue what's going to, what's around the next corner. And every time it seems to find a way of surprising you almost every single week, which is quite a, quite a feat. (laughs) Well, and as you were saying, because it's an an encased uh, series, because there is a, a, it's a finite number of episodes, you know that no, no one is safe in the show. And that's another beautiful thing about the way that they're doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you look at most TV TV that's on right now. If you're looking at a major character, for example, you know that that character is not going to be killed off. And, and there's a good chance, you know, if they do kill them off, it'll be some strange thing way down the line. Right. But, but in this series, you have no idea what's coming. Right. And there's an extraordinarily good chance that a lot of the characters you like may not make it out. But then again, the the flip side of Coven, which is so cool, is that <laughs> rather than just throw the rule book out and say anybody can die, this season so far seems to be saying, you know what, just about every single person is going to die, but that doesn't really matter. <laughs> because they're all going to be back, too. I, I yeah, can't well, think of many characters in the, in the show so far who haven't died at least once. <laughs> well, I don't think the council is coming back. Yeah, I don't think... So I, I, yeah, I think, I think she took care of that pretty thoroughly. <laughs> Hi. I'm Keith Ari DeCandido, international best-selling and award-winning author of over 40 novels, as well as comic books, short stories, novellas, and more. I'm also an editor, currently hiring out through Creditorial, a musician, currently percussionist for the Boogie Nights, and a whole lot more. Hear me talk about my writing and my life, and also do readings for my work on my twice-monthly podcast, Dead Kitchen Radio, part of the Chronic Rift Network. For more information, go to chronicrift.com or to deadkitchenradio.mevio.com. This is G2V. Um, I was just thinking, uh, you know, before we dive completely into three, just a nice little bit of continuity, which I've only just really thought about, is in regards to Evan Peters. Uh, and, you know, Evan played uh, Tate, Tate in the first series. Right. And uh, Kyle in this one. And it's really interesting. If you look at his character, there's probably, you know, pages written about this kind of a thing. But in the first series, of course, he's a villain. Mm-hmm. 
um, very much an anti-hero. <laughs> very much an anti-hero. I mean, uh, but drawn to be very sympathetic in in that you get you get a lot of why he is the way he is. It doesn't excuse it, of course, but no, yeah. Uh, but in the second series, which, you know, and this won't spoil anything, uh, he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. He's actually, you know, he's a very good guy who you're rooting for. Yeah. And then, of course, in this series, he's a victim. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's an, an interesting little thing. He's actually had an, an opportunity to play completely different characters. Um, and that and not not necessarily has happened with all of the recurring actors. You know, some they all get variations of themes. But his have been strikingly different. And he also gets reunited with Farmiga. And yeah. and that was something they were saying early on before this season began, which was that uh, she's one of the few that, I, and I only know this from reading, but she's one of the few that wasn't in the second season. No, not at all. Um, so that when they wanted to bring her back for this one, one of the main motivations apparently was the idea that they had this weird sort of very well-regarded Romeo and Juliet aspect to the two of them in the first season that worked so well that they deliberately wanted to play on that meta kind of idea that here are the two actors again, and you know that they're intertwined from the previous season, and even though they're different characters completely, they're still locked in this sort of tragic love affair kind of thing. (laughs) So that's kind of fun to see that playing out again, and how that one's going to end, we don't know yet. Yeah, no, we we don't know, but it is interesting that that uh, due to horrific circumstances, <laughs> it's not. She's <laughs> what were you? What was that? No, no, go ahead. <laughs> you know where I was going, of course. Go ahead. It's that in this series, um, they're actually able to be together. Yep. Even though from episode one, we're shown that uh, uh, Zoe, the character Zoe, is a, a black widow, right? Um, which might actually be a nice like, segue if we talked a little bit about the characters and maybe some of their their powers for the people who don't haven't been watching the show. And this this alone might entice you into watching wanting to check it out. Well, of course, the show is American Horror Story, and in each year they've been doing variations on the horror genre in general. And it seems like they've also been trying to focus in on a particular subset of monster creature, very often more than one. Now, I may not be too clear on a lot in season two, but I know more than maybe even you think. I've read a few things, so I do know some things. But certainly in season one, the principal thing was ghosts and haunting. It had elements of Amityville and some similar things like that. Coven, of course, it's no secret then that our principal focus is on witches. And this entire year is based around a coven, a long-standing coven of witches that has, over the generations, been whittled down to very few remaining people who are struggling to survive in a world that seems to have progressively left them behind. And on top of it, they have a supreme, which is a post that is held by a variety of them as the years go on, the one that is ostensibly the leader of the coven, who has only just returned after a long time of basically shirking her responsibilities, and that's Jessica Lange's role as Fiona. But they also have a long-standing feud with a different strain of witch, a different ethnicity from the voodoo side of things in New Orleans and from the very real uh, historic figure who has passed into pop culture legend of Marie Laveau, played in this season by Angela Bassett. Uh, who seems to be trying to match Jessica Lang for chewing scenery at every opportunity. <laughs> so what's fascinating is this show is taking on some really serious and heavy stuff and doing it 
with a bizarre and welcome dose of humor, while it's also, as I said before, doing really horrific things, because it's also dealing with interesting issues of race and gender. It's pitting Coven's the that white coven against black coven basically it's exploring the history of new orleans in a way it incorporates another real historic figure kathy bates is playing madame lalari who was a real person but who has been wildly fictionalized uh, over the years and if you look her up you'll see i did a little checking there are a lot of ghost tours and other things throughout new orleans that have added substantially to her legend to create even more of a monster than maybe she was, which is not to say that she wasn't already a horrible person. And so it's exploring aspects of that. Uh, And the gender thing is interesting too, because this is probably one of the few shows on where virtually every primary character is a woman. And I find it interesting, by the way, that up until recently, just about every male character in it is rendered either incapable of really doing anything or even able to speak which just (laughs) seemed to be a running gag for a while until we finally turned a corner and a few of them started talking again right i mean well we have we've had uh danny houston as of course the axe man again another uh another uh, character based on supposedly based on a a true story right right and uh, but we haven't seen him recently (laughs) no he came and went maybe back again but he he's certainly awesome strange strange and interesting addition and as we talked about that was one of the things that we both discovered we agreed on from season one that maybe one of its few missteps in the first year uh the murder house year was introducing the black dahlia right which in that story didn't feel quite right that late in the series or season introducing a historic figure and fictionalizing that person but in this they started from episode one with several historic figures worked into the mm-hmm. plot. So it's not unusual that another one pops up and it feels right. Yeah. And we were, of course, both nervous when the Axeman was first introduced, but they think they used it to pretty good effect. Yeah. And he and boy, does he play well with Jessica Lange's character. Oh, yeah. It's just a bizarre and strange and yet also very sweet and satisfying love story going on with, <laughs> with the, the serial killer. The ghostly serial killer and the the cancer-stricken coven leader <laughs> who will slit the throat of a young girl at the drop of a hat. But aren't, <laughs> but aren't they sweet together when they get yeah. together? Yeah, no, there's, uh, nobody is um, without um, sin in, in, their, in their own ways in this show, that's for sure. I was almost And I use that term lightly. I was going to almost immediately respond and say Zoe, but then again, really not. So No. Yeah. <laughs> she's certainly done her share of stuff now at this point. Yeah, exactly. Well, you were saying earlier about taking a look at some of the characters. And one of the things that's certainly great about the show is it has absolutely no lack of amazing characters and amazing performances for every single one of them. I can't think of a weak link in this cast at all. Uh, From the smaller parts that have drifted in and out so far to the main characters. So maybe we should focus on some that we mentioned some names already, but maybe we should focus on some of the ones that really uh, stand out for us. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Let's see the ones that stand out. We'll go ahead and then I'll carry on. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously Jessica Lange. Yeah. I mean, one thing, um, one of the things that's kind of shaken some people was that she's been talking, Jessica Lange, the actress herself, has been talking recently about sort of segueing out of acting 
and probably uh, stopping American Horror Story after next year. She's the one actress, well, there have been many, but she's the one actress that seems to be the absolute foundation of this series, has been in every season so far, is evidently already committed to next year, but is already making some noise about maybe uh, giving it up, and whether that's partially uh, the usual kind of negotiation tactic or not. It sounds like it might be a little more sincere than that. And Obviously, one thing about that would be she would be a horrible loss because certainly from what I've seen in one and three, and I can only assume in two, mm-hmm. she's certainly the strongest person every time. She blows everybody off the screen, which is not to say that everybody else isn't fantastic. She's just that extra level better. It's been an extraordinary run for her at this point in her career, too. I think it speaks to a longstanding problem in Hollywood in general, which is that when actresses get older, they frequently don't get the opportunity or the roles to demonstrate how wonderful they still are. And this is an extraordinary thing where she gets to play larger-than-life characters and is excellent every time. And I think this may be, of the two things I've seen so far, I certainly think Fiona is is absolutely superb and even better than uh, her role in the first season. It's quite a tour de force kind of performance, and, and it'll be interesting to see where her character goes in the second half, but it's bizarre to see someone who's sort of a villain and a hero all at the same time. Yeah, and also uh, she was given such uh, range so far in this series uh, just a couple episodes ago where she was uh, effectively killing herself mm-hmm. uh, you know, and dealing with the cancer and then getting sort of that chance to be reborn thanks to Dennis O'Hare <laughs> uh, stepping on in as Spalding and having, giving her that great speech. Um, you know, she really got to, to shine and really got to, you know, stre- stretch out her acting muscles a little bit there. Um, not that she needs those opportunities, but uh, she's just had so much opportunity for great stuff in this series. It's been wonderful. Yeah, I mean, she, she quite simply just walks into a room and, <laughs> and you know something awesome's going to happen. Yeah, and, and usually it's a quick wave of, of a finger and a, <laughs> a door blows open or somebody gets thrown against a wall. <laughs> exactly. I mean, she's someone that just completely owns a scene. So, I mean, that they've certainly built around that presence that anchors uh, this whole thing. Yeah. And uh, you had already mentioned Angela Bassett, and I, I equally have been loving her as well in this. She is just embrace this character <laughs> to such a degree uh she's just wonderful and she's she's a great character too because she has such a great long history uh with the, with everything that's going on in the series and of course with uh Lalaurie, uh which of course will segue into kathy bates who also is kicking ass and taking names in this show <laughs> Um, but yeah, Angela Bassett, if you, if you're a fan of hers, uh, and you haven't seen this, this series, uh, I definitely recommend you, you check her out in here because she has really, really, as you said, she's chewing up the scenery and she's spitting it out all over the place and having a great time. It's a show where, I mean, the, the that was another thing too, that I actually mentioned to her. I remember when we first started watching this season was I, I, as I mentioned, we went through all of season one. And one of the things that I found interesting and, and enjoyed about season one at the time was that it started out very normal and <laughs> built over the first few episodes into crazy stuff is going to happen in this house. By the time you get to the rubber suit guy and everything, it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> things are going horribly awry. But it spent a little time taking you along with this family out of the real world and into something bizarre and supernatural. With mm-hmm. this season – 
from the first couple minutes of the first episode, Zoe kills a guy, and it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you're a witch. We're sending you off to the witch station of Hogwarts. Let's go. And and suddenly you just immediately know there are witches, there's a coven, there's a voodoo queen, there's a thing. I mean, within the first episode and then the first act, you're instantly in the realm of the supernatural, and the crazy has already been set to 11. So right. one of the things I loved about this was that was a com- another complete tonal shift. It was like, we're not going to ease you into this. We're going completely full bore with as as much as we can come up with. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing with the acting in it. They completely embraced it. And it's like, this is going to be nuts every week. So mm-hmm. you can't you can't play this down. It's going to. Well, I was going to say the other nice thing about that, even the very first episode, is that they lay out the rules pretty quickly too mm-hmm. because didn't they deal right right from the outset with uh with misty day's uh death and sudden reappearance i mean just you you f- effectively are told right from the get-go that death is immaterial oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's irrelevant yeah i mean exactly that was that was dealt with immediately the other thing that certainly plenty of people have pointed out some people have already seen reviews pointing out that they're tiring of it i haven't but I also think the other problem, too, is a show like this gets popular almost immediately. There's that backlash of some critics feel like they now immediately have to find fault with it. One one thing that's been talked about quite a bit, mostly positively until recently, has been the extraordinary cinematography in this season, particularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of fisheye lenses and weird angles. Almost any time you're in that house, they shoot it, not just Dutch angles, but like the weirdest. I, I've never seen. Sometimes just a shot is beautiful. In how yeah, cameras are rotating and yeah, and, it's yeah. it's it it keeps you off balance all the time. Now there are people, like I said, that are already starting to say, "Ah, oh, it's a little too much." It's like no, because if you're going to buy into the fact that even the style of the show has taken on this ethereal, surreal kind of approach, you're not going to suddenly dial that back <laughs> halfway through the season. It's mm-hmm. going to stick with it. So you've got to stick with it. You either go with it or you don't. I think even the look of this year is extraordinary. A lot of black and white, by the way, too, you notice, which I think is actually a none too subtle and, and sort of, again, tongue-in-cheek kind of commentary on one of the main themes of the show. Because you notice how often there's a monochrome kind of approach to the design mm-hmm. of a lot of things in the house, in different locations. Actually, when you get to Laveau's place, color just springs up everywhere. And it's, right, and it's which is beautiful. more cultural, I think. Yeah, it shows a warmth, and and there's so much color when you go there, and it's and it is there's a beauty to it, and then you go into the the house, and it's cold, and there's it's just white and uh, just amazing stuff. I mean, even just the design, like I said, it's just amazing. Now that said, it's interesting because in the Axeman story, I remember well the, the story where they the witches get the Axeman. Mm-hmm. Um, you saw that the house was a little bit more lively and richer. Sure, and you know we saw that there were, all the portraits were up, and there was there were curtains and there were rugs and everything. So that's just sort of shown that yeah the that aspect the witches of course are fading away mm-hmm. or being or being wiped out. <laughs> right. We can talk about hunters in a bit, witch hunters in a bit, but um, and then of course somehow. Laveau has been able to um, to skirt around that, mm-hmm. except for that's changing now. <laughs> that's changing now. I also love the show that has prided itself, not just this year, but apparently every year, on having sequences or scenes that has everybody talking the next day, including incredibly over-the-top violence that has 
I guess has not been seen really on any other television show I can think of except something like The Walking Dead, uh, a show that's felt and, and also airing on a cable, but a cable commercial network. This runs on FX. So to see some of the stuff that this show is allowed to do, I'm I'm still always amazed every week. And yet the the mid-season finale, that episode head, ended on a scene between Jessica Lange and Angela Bassett that was done with no dialogue and just the most subtle turning of heads and an expression. And I found it interesting that when you many of these shows do this now, the mid-season break, this one isn't doing as big a one as a show like Walking Dead does. But for something like that that's basically a cliffhanger, for a show that's been so over the top, that cliffhanger was so understated and quiet mm-hmm. that it was some, I think it made it even more impressive because of that. But it also leaves us with the idea that the whole game is about to change. Yeah. which makes it really exciting. But but obviously, we're talking about the end. We should step back to some of the other characters, too. You should mention a little bit about Misty Day. Yeah. Don't you want to talk about Misty Day? <laughs> <laughs> I think you do. <laughs> well, Lily, is it? do you know how you pronounce her last name? Is it Ray, just Rabe? I actually or? don't know. I yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, so. uh, she's another actress who's been uh, in all three series. And uh, she's playing this character um, named Misty Day, who's sort of uh, fairly naive about a lot of stuff. But she's a well, she's a resurrectionist or something, isn't that? Did they even her prime? Even... Yeah, I can't remember if they used a, uh, a term. I think they did. So somebody would probably I think they tossed it. Yeah, and it might have been that. But so she lives out on the bayou basically, and is and has this magical mud and ritual that can bring people back from the dead. Now, interestingly, and I've been thinking about this. Do we know who brought her back, or did she just come back on her own? If I remember correctly, it was actually said that she did it herself, but I don't know. I can't remember clearly now whether that's something that we we just heard secondhand. And like a lot of things they do in the show, it could be something where the full story won't be revealed until later. So right. we might find there's a twist in that. But if I remember correctly, so far she came back herself because of that very power that she possesses. Mm-hmm. which is her principal power at this point. So presumably that's why she came back. But we might, I don't know, there might be more to it. Now, the amazing thing about her character, I mean, that I've noticed is that unlike almost everybody else <laughs> who seems to have sort of this dark side, she's very innocent and and very sweet. She's very um, innocent and sweet, but <laughs> she clearly has abandonment issues. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. She seems like she could be a little dangerous if you cross her and and don't and you leave her alone. But then again, she's now being welcomed in, and that doesn't seem to be an issue right now. But yeah, she is pretty much. She's a very childlike character. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, and, uh, we should point out that her one primary uh, um, obsession is Stevie Nicks. Stevie Nicks. <laughs> so whenever it seems like whenever you see her, she's either listening to Stevie Nicks or Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, and uh, and of course <laughs> that leads into uh, the next episode, which will be the first episode of after the mid-season break, which is uh, amusingly titled "The Magical Delights of Stevie Nicks." And um, and I wonder who's going to be in that. <laughs> <laughs> we still don't know all the details. We but. don't know all the details, but we do know that Stevie Nicks is in it. So. That seemed yeah. like that was something that they pretty much wanted to have happen one way or the other, no matter what, and, and things worked out. So she will be there. And I'm sure yeah. Misty Day will be delighted. <laughs> yeah, it should be fun. 
Um, yeah, she's she's great. A, lot, uh, a couple other people, I guess. Uh, I mean, we again, everybody in this is wonderful. Right down to smaller bit players, like for instance, when we when we finally found out the backstory of uh, Sarah Paulson, another return returning uh, actress who plays Cordelia, Fiona's daughter, who's been running the coven. She's had her uh, she's had her brief bout with blindness, which made her very sentinel like. Uh, if anybody remembers oh, yeah. that movie, but as soon as I saw her blind look, I thought, "Oh, cool, a sentinel reference. This is awesome." <laughs> um, but when we finally started finding out about her husband and his backstory, even characters that were coming in, like the guy who played his father, mm-hmm. everybody's just knocking out of the park in this show. I just I just oh, felt yeah. like everybody is a complete character. In a way that you don't often see. And, of course, one of the people we, we have to give a shout-out to here, mainly because we also spent some time early in the in the run of this podcast talking about him, and I'm sure hopefully we'll be talking about him for years to come, is <laughs> Dennis O'Hare, yeah. uh, who is just absolutely delightful in Season 1 uh, and is back here. Was he in Season 2? Um, no, okay. I don't think he was. Now he's no. back in season three, spent almost the entire first half of the season not talking at all. <laughs> and looking really creepy. And looking like Chris Elliott from Scary Movie 2. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And he's Spalding, who's extremely devoted to, to Fiona, and uh, that certainly... Likes pl- to dress, and likes to wear dresses and play with dolls. <laughs> okay, so he likes to wear dresses, and he also apparently has a thing about keeping dead bodies of girls around. <laughs> but, you know, that's going to happen in a house like that. Oh, it was only Madison. It was only Madison, and she's annoying anyways. And, and of course, that's Emma <laughs> Roberts joining the, the American Horror Story family there as Madison, a extremely successful Hollywood actress who just also happens to be a witch and part of the coven. Uh, one of many who has proven to us, as so many have done time to get on the show, that death is more than just a door. Uh, it's a revolving door, apparently. Um, and she's a she's got telekinesis. That's her power, right? She's got telekinesis, and and um, Dennis O'Hare has recovered the ability to speak uh, because uh, he's a ghost now, so he could do that. <laughs> but we were talking about him as Russell in True Blood, and Dennis O'Hare is just one of those guys. He's one of the truly great character actors working today. He's one of those people, and there are many of them, but he's one of those people where the second you see his name, you just go, okay, whatever they're going to give him, he will be perfect. It'll be great. And it, he's been a little underused, maybe. But it should be interesting to see where it goes with him now. And it's funny because you were saying how he can talk now because he's a ghost. But remember, he could talk because uh, Zoe restored her his tongue and then murdered him. <laughs> and then murdered him. Oh, that's right. That's one of the things that we have to put at her feet. That's right. Well, and then, of course, in one of the finest moments of this first half of the season, uh, Zoe, Taysa Formiga's character, Got to go full ash with a chainsaw against some zombies. And I got to mention that, too, because it seems I don't know about season two. I assume it did this, too. But certainly of season one for a show, American Horror Story, you'd certainly have to turn the fact that you're airing in the fall and around Halloween time as a major virtue of your storytelling. So, for instance, in season one, they did a two part story that was based around the night of Halloween. Uh, I don't know what they did with season two, but I assume something. Wow, I don't even remember. But in but. season three with Coven, once again, we reached Halloween and had basically a two-part – the whole thing is so heavily serialized week by week. It's not really quite that way, but it definitely felt like a two-part episode uh, mm-hmm. when they hit right around Halloween time. 
and had a sequence involving Laveau raising the dead and sending zombies to attack the coven. So, yeah, it's not just witches, but zombies. And basically, American Horror Story uh, took a shot across The Walking Dead's bow with their (laughs) zombie story. And I have to say, as wonderful as I think The Walking Dead is, particularly this year, and as amazing, as beautiful as the makeup work is on The Walking Dead every single week, I think the zombies in the two episodes of American Horror Story absolutely blow them out of the water in terms of pure creepy terror because they were just they were done perfectly they were shadowed and underlit it was a dark gray night it was a supernatural reason for them to exist everything seemed to coincide to make these zombies truly horrific and creepy and disturbing in a way that the daylight non-supernatural for all we know viral zombies of walking dead really just Eventually, they're still interesting creatures, but you're not necessarily terrified by them in the same way. Well, and they also really embraced the whole gothic horror aspect of them as well. There was like a Civil War zombie. Right. And there was a, you know, I think there wasn't a nurse. And there was, it was just sort of all these icons that you're so used to in regards to, to the Walking Dead imagery. Yeah. And then Zoe gets to uh, <laughs> saw them all to pieces. Awesome. And that's yeah. another thing, too. Dismemberment and decapitation seems to be a running theme in the show so far. Yeah, not, or reassembly. Not that it slows people down, you know, just... No, exactly. Just puts a <laughs> well, it's funny talking about head. Yeah, in regards to, of course, uh, LaLaurie, who uh, is uh, effectively immortal, for all we know. Um, yeah, you know, she, her, her, she is now existing as a head in a box or on a table. And uh, the reason that I'm just just throwing that right out here and not worrying about spoilers is because entertainment weekly two two issues ago had her severed head on the cover of the magazine. Thank you. Before it aired. Now here's the thing. (laughs) I was about to bring that. I was waiting to bring that up. I'm glad you did because I was going to bring that up anyway. And I think we've talked about some of this in past podcasts. I'm a very, usually I'm, I'm finding it's interesting. Now I'm changing a little bit as I'm actually finding myself really excited by certain things. I seem to be changing a little bit. I've always felt I am completely 100% spoiler. I've never cared. I've sometimes actively sought out things ahead of time to know everything before I see something. It's never, at least the way I feel, it's never ruined anything for me. Recently, however, there have been a few occasions where I've actually found myself flipping in the other direction and genuinely wanting to not know to see what happens. I did that when we watched the first season of American Horror Story. Once you recommended it, I didn't want to know anything was coming. And I think absolutely it affected the experience. And I was shocked. We we get Entertainment Weekly when that was on the cover. And I thought, what the hell? And the mm-hmm. interesting thing I noticed was it was an it was an issue cover dated that would have run it would have been out the week that that episode was out if there had been – I can't remember exactly how this works now. If there had been a week break between the two uh, or, or, or if it was like supposed to be the week before so – oh, that's right. It came out around Thanksgiving, that issue, and the show skipped uh, Thanksgiving for pretty obvious reasons. Most of the time, television often does that. They ran the episode called The Dead on November 20th. I'm looking at the list right here. And then they ran The Sacred Taking December 4th, and then Head ran December 11th. But if they hadn't done that, 
that issue would have come out just shortly before the episode would have aired. It's almost like Entertainment Weekly miscalculated the fact that they weren't going to run for a week. Mm -hmm. Uh, But either way, it puts the huge reveal for the mid-season finale, or at least one major thing, (laughs) on the cover at least a good couple days before everybody was going to see it. And that just uh, that that bothered me a little bit. Well, and beyond just the head, it also has you know uh, Fiona and Marie Laveau together, right? Which is another you know that's another tease or another reveal about something that's coming up. So it really was like we're going to spoil some major things in this one cover photo. Oh, and then the whole article itself was just a wash with stuff. But then again, I I didn't read it. Yeah, it it. um, I mean, if you hadn't seen it. If you hadn't seen it yet, it tells the whole thing about the corporation, uh, which, as we've now discovered, is a tradition as old, potentially, as the witches themselves, which is also another thing that I I love about this year is that it's creating this mythology that builds on a lot of historical things like Salem and Laveau, and yet is building its own version of that. And there's evidently this very corporatized, witch-hunting organization of human beings that are evidently a shadow organization that has existed for a long time and have been hunting down the witches, which may now have provided us with a very strong reason why the coven that we're following has reached the the really sad point that they're at now, which is that they've had a long-standing enemy that's been whittling away at them for a very long time. And, of course, one of the other big things is that we know that Cordelia's husband has, since he was a child, been trained to be one of those very witch hunters. And seems to also have been playing several different sides because he's involved with Laveau and he's working with his father's corporation that's dedicated to this whole uh, witch hunting thing. And uh, I actually wonder, you know, to be honest, it's one of the things, you know, the other thing we were said we would do in this episode is look ahead to what we think might happen. I actually wonder if Hank's one of those characters who might wind up being sort of redeemed by the end. Mm-hmm. Because he clearly... That I think we're really getting indications that he genuinely loves Cordelia. Or that he's allowed an emotional connection that he shouldn't have allowed. He was he obviously married her and was there the whole time to be the mole inside and to help take down the coven. But he really does seem to care. So... I'm, well, yeah, I mean, after everything goes down, where does he go? He doesn't go right to the house to kill everybody. He goes to Laveau. Yeah, that's well, that's another thing that was also yeah. a, a nice twist in this finale episode, this mid-season finale, was that when he has a day left to basically fulfill his bargain with Laveau, he turns around and goes after them instead. Mm-hmm. So we know that his allegiance is, is shaky. Do you like movies? Well, let me make you an offer that you can't refuse. Have you ever found yourself standing at the local Cineplex with that smell of freshly buttered popcorn wafting through your nostrils, wondering if that new Hugh Jackman movie is really worth your time? Or have you ever lamented about that time you spent scouring the vast expanse of the internet for movie and DVD release dates when, let's be honest, you'd rather be leveling up your troll hunter, working on the great American novel, or even watching kitten videos? Oh yes, I said kitten videos. I will do the work for you. All I ask is 15 to 30 minutes of your time every Tuesday. My name is Michael Faulkner, and every Tuesday is showtime at the Weekly Plex, your audio guide to what's new at the box office, how the top ten fared over the weekend, and what's coming to your home theater on DVD and Blu-ray. You can find the Weekly Plex on the Chronic Rift Network at www.chronicrift.com. 
along with a plethora of other podcasts that explore the culture in pop culture. The Weekly Podioplex, brought to you by The Chronic Rift. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the theater. That's a wrap! And, you know, carrying on from that, one thing that I really, really dig about the Witch Hunter storyline and, and that whole mythology is that – and it was so funny because when it was all beginning to be revealed, I, I was saying this to um, to Tamara, my wife. I said, it's funny because if this were a role-playing game, <laughs> they would give you the option of playing Witch Hunters or Witches because both missions and both stories are they, – they're equally interesting – but you can't really say you – know, how do I phrase this? Morally, uh, the witch hunters are actually on the side of right that, that's, because the witches are incredibly powerful and dangerous. Well, that's what I was actually – that's what Stephanie <laughs> and I have been talking about for a long time too. And a lot of this may not necessarily – it may not be as vague by the time we get to the end of the year. It's hard to say. You know, We'll see right. how the, the, the story ends. But that's what we've been talking about a lot, too, which is when you really think of it, both sides, you can see it both ways because you really look at – well, one of the things I also loved when we finally got this whole backstory or the beginning of the backstory about the corporation and Hank's childhood was this – and this is weird because he's talking about this guy. is like, oh, he's hunting down. They, they're all trying to kill all these characters that we're – we've sort of been – trained from the beginning of the season that these are the characters we're following and that's another thing too one of the reasons by the way in a weird segue one of the reasons why the godfather is such a great movie one of the many reasons why and yet one that's always fascinating to discuss because you're basically placed in the role as audience as sympathizer to a family of murderers Mm -hmm. but you're with them so that's the that's where your allegiance lies so when someone comes after the corleone family you're with them and and you could step out of that, but that's where the viewpoint is. And it's amazing when you can tell a story well that way. From the moment this season begins, we're with this coven. We're, we go into it through Zoe. So we're told, in a way, these are the people that you're supposed to be with. Then you can start to see all the other players and find your way morally and ethically. But still, the viewpoint is basically from inside that house, those women. Mm-hmm. And yet, one of the things I thought was wonderful was it's so rare to see an actual warm father-son relationship. <laughs> and a lot of the relationship between Hank and his father is clearly strained because of what I think is his growing love for Cordelia. This put him sort of at odds with his father. There's still aspects of that that's just this classic, I think, very American thing also that just – Every father-son story is always about the son desperately trying to live up to the father's unreasonable demands, and we're seeing that with Hank and everything. And yet, the scene where you see him as a kid, his father is telling him, you know, take the shot, take the shot, and he's like pushing him into doing this horrific thing, but a necessary thing. And yet, he also he, he takes literally takes fire for him, and yeah. and and then he hugs him. And it's and and at that moment, I was like, you know, usually you'd see the father berating the kid, like, "Why did you take the damn shot?" And instead, <laughs> he hugs him. It's like, no, it's okay. And I thought this is a really nice relationship. And really, when you think about it, like you just said, these human beings are fighting back 
against another race of creature that is a huge threat to the future of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. And yet, the other thing that my wife and I have often been talking about is, well, if our allegiance is, though, with the witches, and if you see, like, there are girls like Zoe, where you could argue, it's like, well, they're they're what they are, then couldn't you argue, well, if they exist, maybe it's because they're supposed to exist? <laughs> maybe they should win? I mean, why why is humanity immediately supposed to be okay? Maybe the witches are supposed to win because they're better, but of course... That that argument you could you could certainly uh, dial back through history and find that justifies all manner of horrific things. But it's right. but it's a weird back and forth in this show. Both sides have reasons to say I I have a right to be here. Yeah, and it's funny too when you look at you know what Madison did to the to uh, oh, what's his name Kyle's bus right you know just tossed it so nonchalantly as an act of revenge, killing a whole bunch of people, and we kind of just. Let that go. But then look what happened to her, though. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. <laughs> I mean the, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, the, uh, the, the guilty do, do pay. They learn their lesson. In the <laughs> yes, end, often. I think so. Although she's doing okay for herself right now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, she's also survived uh, uh, an assassination, basically. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, that's another aspect of how this show pretty much laid its cards on the table right from the very beginning, dealing with horrific stuff, even sort of doing the law and order trick of uh, ripping from the headlines a little bit. I mean, what happened to Madison is a familiar, unfortunately, a familiar story that we've seen play out more than once in recent news coverage. Mm -hmm. And they used that as sort of the linchpin to establish her character and set things off in her storyline. And then one of the other things that's been fascinating has been seeing – this is bizarre too. And this also brings me back – I will not spend too much time on Walking Dead, but it brings me back to Walking Dead. One of the things about Walking Dead that's been interesting is probably the most popular character on that show is Daryl, uh, Norman Reedus' character Daryl, who is the younger brother to Michael Rooker's character Merle that was on the show, both of whom were white racist guys – who were very clearly like that, and yet Daryl has gone through a sort of redemptive path uh, arc that has made him incredibly popular and created the strange idea that seems to be working that, well, can, can you bring someone back from a lifetime of that kind of hate and teach them not to feel that way anymore? And can we find something good in those kind of people? And... It's a strange story to tell. You don't usually see that working successfully. It seems to have worked in the case of a character like Daryl. Now we've got Madame LaLaurie, who in probably what I think is one of the weirdest and most interesting things they've done in the year, they paired her off with Queenie, mm -hmm. who we really didn't mention much yet, one of the, one no, of the other uh, members of the coven, who is a wonderful character, whose power is probably one of the most interesting powers of all of them, I think, the ability to hurt someone else by causing the injury to herself. She's a voodoo doll. She's a basically. living voodoo doll. Yeah. yeah. Which, of course, was right there, was a clue to the fact yeah, that exactly. <laughs> she could potentially change allegiance, which we've seen her sort of do. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, she's developing this strange bond and almost friendship with a woman who despises her for the very color of her skin. And now in the last episode, given the opportunity to set Lilari's head on a table, 
is subjecting her to things like roots and and showing her things to try to teach her, look, this is what's happened to the cult. Because one of the things they've also done with Kathy Bates' characters from the moment she was revived from her past, she had been, we didn't even mention, but she's been buried alive for all this time and, and brought back into the 21st century by Fiona. She's discovered that there's now a black president, for instance, which she's said horrible things about that. <laughs> um, and being thrown together with Queenie, she after initially rejecting the very notion of dealing with her because she's black, seems to be one of the only people in the house that she feels comfortable talking to. Yeah. And they have this weird connection. And now, although Queenie sort of turned against her, she's trying to teach her. And we actually get a moment in that last episode where Lalari is crying, listening to, what was she listening to? It was like a spiritual song about yeah. freedom. Uh, was she watching Selma or something like news footage? Uh, yeah, I can't remember I, I can't, exactly something which like that. scene it was, but yeah. Yeah, and, and I was thinking, this is bizarre. I mean, are we actually going to see the idea that a historic figure who was well-known to be racist could learn to be a better person? I, that's, that is an extraordinary thing to be able to pull off that kind of story. And it seems to be where they're trying to go with that. And of course, being American Horror Story, she's just a head on a table. She's just a head on a table. <laughs> well, they, I'm sure they can put her all back together. <laughs> yeah, I suspect she probably will. I, yeah, I, I don't think she'll probably stay that way. That was so funny, the, the scene where her body was still standing in the cage, waving the flies away. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> from her decapitated corpse. <laughs> How does it know the flies are around? Well, I guess I it feels know. the flies. <laughs> a little bit of a Dr. Hill thing going on there, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, and that's interesting. That brings up a lot of things. One of the things that I think American Horror Story has also proven itself to do very well, and I'm, another reason why I'm looking forward to see what season two has in it, is that there are many shows, many productions where you can argue they're shamelessly derivative, and mm -hmm. and not to any benefit. And yet, this is one that shows that the people behind it have an extraordinary ability to occasionally quite deliberately, it seems, borrow from some familiar things, but put their own twist on it and make it exciting or interesting or far more bizarre and perverted than the original <laughs> ever was. The, the first season obviously had its share of uh, Amityville Horror and many other haunting stories. And Beetlejuice. And Beetlejuice, that's right. <laughs> and then this year so far has had everything from, you know, Evil Dead to Reanimator and so many other things mixed into it. There was another one I was actually going for, and now I can't even remember where I was heading. That just shows that you can borrow from things. You can take elements that feel like they are more of an homage than a ripoff. Mm -hmm. And this is creating quite a mix of, of all these references and doing it so well. I think that's, I mean, not to dwell on it, but I think that's one of the things that they... Uh, I had issue with in regards to series two or season two, and you'll see this. Um, you can pick out a few of the little things here and there uh, from first and third. But with second, the problem is, and <laughs> I'm just going to do it. I'm going to say it. The problem in that series is you have nuns, lunatics, <laughs> serial killers, Nazis, aliens, mm -hmm. mutants, uh, demons, <laughs> <laughs> the list goes on and on, and it became so muddled because of that. 
uh, it didn't have that uh, the focus that the the first and third uh, have in, in in particular, and and also the homages that I think are a little more restrained in the first and third. In the second, I think there maybe was too much going on. Mm. You'll see it. You'll see it, and we'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in this one, and and the other thing that's also going on here is, uh, like we're like we've already been saying, this season is tackling some pretty serious subject matter, but doing it not only with this weird, perverse sense of humor, but with all the violence and insanity that comes with doing a full bore horror story like this. But we already mentioned like, the issues of race and and uh, gender and all these other things. One of the other things that is coming up are uh, elements of religious persecution. Yeah. And we're seeing that through the character that Patty Lapone is playing, Joan, whose son, and this brings us to another person that we should mention, whose son developed a very quick bond with one of the members of the coven, Nan, who's played by Jamie Brewer, the actress with Down syndrome who appeared in the first season as Jessica Lang's daughter. And she's fantastic. In fact, one of the things that I really have enjoyed is how much more it seems they've given her to do. She still doesn't turn up as much, and I think a lot of that might have to do with how long she can work or what else might be going on there with managing that. But when she's on screen, she's wonderful. Uh, She's another fantastic character again this year. The relationship she developed with Patti LuPone's character's son was really refreshing. And there was this amazing scene, I think it was in that last episode, where we went from Patti LuPone's character throwing them out of the room to embracing her completely because it was a way to speak to her son who's currently in a coma, to then getting mad at her all over again (laughs) because through her, the son was accusing her of having uh, arranged the death of his father. And in the space of what, like five minutes and then really, really doing something at the end. Yeah, that is like, oh, okay, we're going to do that. <laughs> exclamation <now>. mark. <laughs> yeah. Exclamation point on that story. Yeah, and uh, although Stephanie is convinced that that's going to uh, have a resolution uh, mm-hmm. or another. And Stephanie was actually saying somebody's going to rush into that room. And I was like, well, there are a lot of possibilities here. Nobody dies. <laughs> really. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it was just the... And, and of course, Lupone's character is, is set up as someone who is somewhat cliched as the typical Bible thumping, you know, anything that doesn't, you know, jibe with my belief system is wrong. But she's in that one scene was strangely all over the map and very interesting. I have to say, I just totally personally, I don't like her. (laughs) (laughs) I've never liked Patti LuPone in anything. I don't like her as an actress. When she turns up, I, I just don't like her in, in this role though. I think she's good, um, but I, I would have happily seen somebody else play the part. I don't know what it is about Patty Lupone I can't stand. But but I, I do think, like I was saying, though, like everyone else, she's doing a wonderful job and, and excellent in it. But uh, that, that thread particularly is an interesting one because it's putting sort of traditional Judeo-Christian beliefs, Christianity specifically, against the notion of witchcraft and, and of course, by extension, voodoo, and how they all sit together in this reality. And it's going to be interesting to see if where that goes. Well, especially because she was killed and brought back as well yeah. by witchcraft. Yeah. I don't know if she realizes that yet. <laughs> yeah, I don't get the impression she's quite clear on that. Yeah. 
But that seems to be just, you know, you know, oh, somebody's back from the dead on Coven. It's Thursday. You know. Well, <laughs> in this case, I suppose we have to say Wednesday. Yeah, exactly. It's Wednesday night. Yeah, it's Wednesday. Somebody's back, <laughs> somebody's back from the dead. <laughs> but yeah, and I guess we should also, as, as like so many things, there's so much to talk about. One of the things that I think American Horror Story, I do remember this even though I wasn't watching it, sort of like caught the public imagination so early on was with the, the, the gimp suit in season one, mm-hmm. uh, the the visual iconography. And this year so far, we've had several things that have done that, one being the Minotaur, yeah, uh, which was one of Lalari's truly disturbing creation. She tortured slaves and punished this particular one by um, imprisoning him and then... Uh, putting the bullhead on him, which apparently, eventually, in ways that I don't think we're entirely clear on where that came from, uh, <laughs> has now just become one. I, I guess because Laveau um, kept him, yeah, and and now he's a Minotaur, and and he and he also had sex with Queenie. We forgot about that part too. Yeah, we forgot that part. Minotaur <laughs> had sex with Queenie at one point, so because that happened too, you know. Uh, well, and then of course there were um, uh, Lalaurie's daughters. Right, uh, and and the the hanging, which in the in the title sequence you can see well, and actually in all the motifs for the the build up to the series, they had that thing with the the feet hang you know hanging over the the desks, mm-hmm. and you would thought, well, does that mean anything, or does that have any ref you know relations to anything in the series? And of course it did. Mm-hmm. It was the, it was the hanging, but and then of course the daughters came back. <laughs> and the daughters came back. Yeah, really, really creepy. Um, fantastic zombies (laughs) just fantastic zombies (laughs) one of the driving forces of this entire story is who is going to be fiona's successor as supreme right which means that this show is deliberately playing a sort of shell game with the audience who's the supreme is it this one is it this one and there are so many options here that one of the fun things about watching the show is you have no idea where a show like this is heading and who's going to turn out to be the one. Currently, my money is on Nan, but I don't know. Might change my mind with the very next episode. <laughs> but it's, it's an odd thing because the whole point of this is Fiona's dying of cancer. She desperately does not want to let go. But it seems inevitable, although death doesn't really seem to matter here. So I don't know why cancer would. But if she is going to stop being the Supreme and somebody else is going to take over, we're wondering who that is. We started with Zoe, which by typical narrative standards would somehow suggest that she was our original heroine. So she's the one. But I'm not so sure about that. I I don't know why, but I think it would be very interesting if it turned out to be Nan. Actually, she's the one that's the most good-hearted, isn't she? You were saying before nobody has, nobody doesn't have like a sin or two. But oh, true, yeah. Nan, I really... Nan, I think is is the nicest one. So I wonder if that means she's she's going to be it. But I don't know. One of the things about this is it's it's absolutely compelling. There have been a couple episodes, like any show, where you'd say, "Oh, well, okay, maybe this week's not as good." But when you're saying not as good on a show like this. It's head and shoulders. Well, head. head ah. Ah, it's a head thing. It's head and shoulders above just about anything else on television. Um, yeah. The show, I think, the episode right before uh, Head felt like a little bit of a placeholder 
but that that happens sometimes, and even even in a tightly constructed thing, where and and I guess I should also mention one of the fun things is most of the time anyway. I think twice now, American Horror Story runs for thirteen episodes, which is kind of a nice little thing. It just happened this way, but this is actually our thirteenth regular episode of the podcast too. So we've got ah, that's excellent thirteen going there. But um, even in something as short as thirteen, you can occasionally have an episode or two where. Oh well, this slows down a little bit, and sometimes that's to sort of get all your pieces in place to continue playing the game. Particularly in a story like this, it feels that way. Mm-hmm. But it still feels like every week on the show, I would say easily three things are going to happen that are going to make your mouth hang open, and you say, "Go, oh, that we're doing that too." Okay. <laughs> And and I remember multiple episodes this year where my wife and I just keep looking at each other like, all right, we just saw that on television now. That's a new <laughs> one. And it just keeps happening. It's amazing. There are entire horror films that can't manage the kind of incredible imagery, disturbing subject matter, and just incredible horrific ideas that this show manages on a weekly basis. Yeah, I think you've you've uh, you've described the show in uh, in in a great way. Um, the, it's been a very very strong season, and as I said at the very top of the show, uh, season three has been my favorite of the entire series so far. Um, and really really looking forward to seeing where it goes after this mid season break. And it may well be that when you listen to this, uh, the show is, that season three is done and season four is underway. But uh, you'll at least hear us uh, talking about how much we enjoyed. Uh, season three of American Horror Story. <laughs> the following show. I always, I always want to get that. Oh, uh, I that love that. Speech that he does. Yeah. Contains mature subject matter. Yeah, we watch every night waiting for the list, and it's like, what? No sexual situations? It's yeah. like, what the hell? <laughs> it's American Horror Story. What are you talking about? All right. Slower week. <laughs> the other last thing I wanted to note, I was just looking through the Wikipedia page. And, you know, I printed all this crap out have it in front of me and i did notice that uh it says stevie nicks as herself two episodes two episodes so well, that's interesting yeah. okay i mean it's wikipedia i do think Take it's it also a grain of salt but i was gonna make a joke about how earlier on we were talking about how this uh season has such a sense of humor i was gonna say it has an incredible uh sense of glee about <laughs> it's far well, you know, there are people that might not actually know that the creators behind this are also, at least one of them anyway, is it one or both? Uh, also the, I think both of them are worked on. Yeah, also the creators behind one of the most successful TV shows of the last few years, which was the musical series Glee, which I can't imagine a more diametrically opposed <laughs> concept. And apparently American Horror Story came about because after the clout from Glee, they turned around and said, okay, what else would you like to do? And it was like this. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. I've, I've actually heard other stories saying that Glee was their way in mm-hmm. just to do this show. <laughs> I like that even more. It's like, okay, fine, Glee. If it's a success, fine. But what we really want to do is this. <laughs> really? With a gimp suit and a minotaur and aliens? and <laughs> You guys are nuts. Yep. Yep. And we're going to tear heads off on television. So. Yeah, is that okay? You can't stop us. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the G2V podcast, part of the Chronic Rift Network at chronicrift.com. For additional episodes, visit our official website at g2vpodcast.com. 
Subscribe to us via iTunes. Join our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at G2V Podcast. And you can always email us at contact at g2vpodcast.com. Our show music was by Brian Boyko, Frank Nora, Kevin McLeod, and Milovoj Bunjevic. Bunjevic.